0: This is the East TraumaCast Trauma with your moderators, Kevin Pay from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah,
1: and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center.
0: This program brought to you by
1: the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, advancing science,
0: fostering relationships, and building careers. Okay, well, thanks for joining us for this episode of TraumaCast. We've got a great uh, assembled cast today and a great topic to talk about. We'll be discussing uh the EAST Literature Review uh, from November, which highlighted the paper titled The American Association for the Surgery of Trauma Grading Scale for 16 Emergency General Surgery Conditions, Disease-Specific Criteria Characterizing Anatomic Severity Grading. Uh, Joining with us to discuss the topic today, uh, we have uh, Christian Jones, who is the EAST reviewer and uh, put together the review for the email. So, Christian, would you please introduce yourself?
2: Hi. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, I'm Christian Jones. I'm an acute care surgeon at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Um, My practice is, is fairly evenly split between trauma and emergency general surgery with, of course, some critical care thrown in there. But the... Largest part, according to Dr. Martin, at least of my practice, is spending time on Twitter and making sure that uh, we stay innovative on the social media side. So it was honestly a a real uh, pleasant surprise to be invited to do one of the literature reviews.
0: Great. Thanks for joining us. Also joining us is uh, Dr. Marie Crandall, who's one of the authors of the paper in question. Uh, Marie, would you please introduce yourself as well?
3: Hi, I am Marie Crandall. I am Professor of Surgery and Director of Research at the University of Florida, Jacksonville. And I have been working on this topic for the last about four or five years. Um, I am the current chair of the Patient Assessment Committee for the American Association for Surgery of Trauma. And it is it has been a, a long journey that has helped define the scope and burden of emergency general surgery Practice in the United States, but also begun to define the anatomic severity of illness for um, as as you heard 16 general surgery emergency general surgery diseases And I've been an author and co-author on all of that. So it's been really a wonderful fruitful product of our committee
0: Great fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited about this topic is I think uh this is very generalizable to all of our uh, listeners, and so I think it should be a should be good discussion. Uh, well, to start off, um, Christian, why don't I ask you first, since you did the review for EAST, would you mind uh, summarizing your review and kind of uh, talking about the paper and, and maybe why you uh, included it in your review?
2: Absolutely, happy to. So a couple of years ago, the American Association for the Surgery of Trauma uh, Committee on Patient Assessment Including Dr. Crandall, of course, undertook an effort to describe this grading system for emergency general surgery diseases. This is very much like the same scale we use for trauma, which we all are accustomed to you know, a grade three versus a grade four liver injury, spleen injury, and so forth. Uh, so, to be quite honest, when I saw this, it was a great relief to find an actual specified guide to bridging both the clinical research and the actual clinical evaluation of a patient. I'll be entirely honest with you, I wasn't sure what to think of the article initially. It doesn't really fit into the traditional mold of other things published in the Journal of Trauma or uh, uh, other major journals like a prospective study. It's not a a systematic review or meta-analysis. It's not really the kind of things, to be honest, we usually concentrate on for the East Literature Review, but I honestly believe this may end up being one of the most important papers of the year, uh, something that's really likely to change how we describe the variation in the emergency general surgery procedures uh, or emergency general surgery diseases. Again, I can't imagine the amount of work that must have gone into reviewing 16 very common diseases, and I'm sure we'll talk about some of the specifics behind those, but uh, the work that Dr. Crandall and her group did to actually lay out a clinical, surgical, imaging, and pathologic grading system for all of these diseases at all different levels, and yet bring them back to the same anatomic criteria for coming up with these grades, uh, is just phenomenal
3: well thank you jeez that that was uh that was incredibly flattering thank you thank you and, and in fact <laughs> there was a fair amount of work in cogitating about these disease processes and i i need to give a huge amount of credit to the former chair of this committee and the person who really started the whole ball rolling which is Shait shafi he is um a professor of surgery at uh, baylor and and was as i said the former chair of this committee and really had a vision of 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 maturing the emergency general surgery field. And so what we what we did is we described many of the things that we see, but instead of having 15 different types of scales for 15 different processes, like necrotizing soft tissue infection has a Linarik scale, and you know, Hin- Hinchey has two or three different scales, none of them make intuitive sense and don't seem to overlap, we instead decided that there was a common theme to most, to many of these emergency general surgery diseases, which was inflammation. And so just as there's a common process of inflammation in appendicitis and diverticulitis, where you get obstruction of lumen, you get, you know, mucus buildup, exceeding the capillary pressure, progression of inflammation to ischemia to perforation infection we used that model for each of the inflammatory diseases. And the ones that didn't quite fit in that model, there were a few, we uh, we tried to use some of the common findings. And by creating not just the pathologic findings, but also things that you might see on imaging or operatively, we're hoping that it'll be universally applicable to people who are trying to code, who are trying to teach, and who um, and who are trying to basically risk stratify for emergency general surgery or other kinds of risk calculators and and quality metrics
0: so uh, this is Dave again a quick question I'm, I'm just curious uh, looking at the uh, you know looking at the masthead on this paper there's uh, lots of really smart people involved in this process how did it actually how did it actually happen did you just sit around a table and sort of you know throw darts at each other I mean how, how did you get Consensus among this many people with varying opinions, and just kind of logistically, how did you arrive at this uh, consensus document? It's really, really remarkable.
3: Yeah, it was a modif- It was exactly that. It was a modified Delphi approach. So at first, we convened when we were first describing the 16 disease processes, which were in the first two papers, and this was a third paper that included the data dictionaries. Um, <clears throat> the The first thing to do was to decide what were the most common emergency general surgery diseases and that was the first paper that came out of our group which was definition and scope of the burden of emergency general surgery and we did that by looking at a nationwide database of you know inpatient sampling and and looked at basically the common emergency general most common emergency general surgery diseases and then we plucked these out as uh, as the ones that we would describe first these first 16 we subsequently started working on some emergency surgery Processes that have to do with bleeding, because as you know, we see those as well but when when we first started to tackle them, each person got one or two, and we we spent a good bit of time trying to create a framework, and ultimately decided that a framework of inflammation on a grading scale of one to five made sense in a lot of ways because a lot of things are graded one to five, we have five fingers <laughs> on one hand, you know it seemed to make sense and and other things are graded in fives like you know that other other things are graded in fives. That it would make intuitive sense to to learners. And so each of us took our disease processes. I, I for example, had like diverticulitis and appendicitis, and then used that infl- pro- in, the progression of inflammation to describe the pathologic, anatomic grading scale for our disease processes. And then subsequently, we brought it back to the group, and in a modified Delphi approach, we kept going round and round, on, and on one phone call, we looked at one or two different disease processes, had suggested changes, and then brought it back to the group one more time. So it was, it was an iterative process, and we did it via consensus. And to some degree, where, where there was literature, we relied on some of the previous things that had been published.
1: So, Marie, can you, can you tell us, what was the group's primary goal or objective in doing this in terms of what this would be used for was it was it something a clinician can use the bedside is it something to just you know codify for describing for research purposes it, what, what, what the was above. the primary goal you guys were trying to achieve with the scoring system
3: it really is all of the above so I think that one of the challenges is you know this is a burgeoning field now and we see so much emergency general surgery such a huge burden of disease especially as acute care surgeons but there's very little risk stratification, right? Like NISQIP has very little ability to risk stratify. And so the addition of an anatomic marker of disease, just like the addition of a really good physiologic marker could be very helpful. In addition, it helps with things like transfer when you're trying to transfer to a higher level of care for somebody who's very sick, or you're at a community hospital and you don't have the ability to deal with a severe necrotizing soft tissue infection. Simply, um simply stating that someone looks sick is less effective than saying on imaging and physical findings this patient has a grade 5 necrotizing soft tissue infection and we thought that for clinical bedside discussions it would be more straightforward than the 15 different scales that are used for diverticulitis for necrotizing soft tissue infections etc and 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 so we thought for clinical applications, for risk stratification, for quality improvement outcomes, and also for research, research and billing. Because if you have a uniform grading scale and and it helps predict outcomes, it helps helps as at least a covariate for, um, again, risk, risk factors as they relate to outcomes, but it helps with research. Just like injury severity score, you always plug that into your multivariate model to to, uh, to look at um, the effect of another variable on your outcome, mortality, or length of stay, or whatever. We would see this as one of the covariates that would help that would help define or help influence outcomes. And then and then finally billing and coding. It makes it makes sense that taking care of somebody with a stage five anatomic stage five or grade five diverticulitis. Would be able to bill at a higher level than an outpatient, you know, grade one diverticulitis.
1: So yeah, I definitely see the research and grading and and communication aspects. So Christian, what do you think about that um, bedside utility? You know, yeah, you're you know, at the bedside with a patient with, say, appendicitis. Uh, you I, know, I, is, is this scoring system going to be something you would find useful?
2: honestly i really do believe so i think that the nomenclature is horribly horribly needed especially in those uh diseases that don't have a clear grading system already uh, most of the time residents and my colleagues know what i'm talking about if i say a Hentry 2 versus a henchie 3 diverticulitis but how many times am i going to be able to say you know, this was the worst gallbladder I've done that I've been able to stay laparoscopic on and have that have any meaning to it whatsoever. Um, Probably after my first three or four, somebody's going to say, wow, maybe you're just not really very good at doing gallbladder. (laughs) Um, Honestly, I I think having some sort of standardized uh, structure for this is something that we've always gravitated to in medicine and and in surgery in particular with with these different uh, structures, these different frameworks for describing things in a standardized way. I I think the real impressive part of this isn't just the demonstration of yet another scoring system, which we certainly know we have plenty of to to try to validate and and try to compare, but the fact that they've actually developed this as sort of a meta framework, if you will, a, a meta scoring system, a scoring system that can be applied to any acute disease, any acute anatomic disease, I guess I should say. So the fact that they've built these 16 into this paper is amazing in and of itself, but underlying that over the last few years, they've been working on this process that actually uses this not only for these 16 diseases, but in a way that that really can be used for emergency general surgeons in any way. So even if there's not uh, something that is already included in this uh, massive table uh in the article, it's something that still can be easily adapted. So I you know the, the biggest, most impressive part of this to me is that meta framework that I called. Um I I'm curious, you know, the, the article itself actually isn't very long. Um the, the vast majority of it is the the data dictionary, the the table which includes the breakdowns by clinical criteria, uh CT findings, um uh OR findings, and pathologic uh evaluation of each individual score, each individual level for the 16 diseases. It sounds almost snarky to say, and I promise I don't mean it this way. Why, Marie, did you all not decide to break this up into 16 articles that, of course, you can get 16 citations for, but more importantly, that, that you might end up spending more time describing the specific choices for each individual disease?
3: Um, most of that was uh, a collaborative decision by ourselves and also the leadership at AASP and Journal of Trauma. So they felt that enthusiasm might wane after a while, and I, I think that that's probably true in terms sure. of readership.
1: Well, I and, one, question. question how important question was, that was that it was that they, they each be 140 characters or less?
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> this way I you know I have, what, uh, 16 times 5 tweets to send out, so that works out right <laughs>
0: So I have a quick question for you, Marie. How how do you go about validating this? I mean, this is uh, you know this is a lot of work, but it it, it it is sort of consensus expert opinion. What what are the endpoints? What are the outcomes? How do you how do you go about validating this? Or is there is there even a need to? Do we just sort of say that this system makes sense and it works and we're going to adopt it and move forward?
3: Well, I think probably. It, similar to the AIS, probably both of those things are true. Um, in fact, it has been at least one, at least actually two disease processes have been studied and validated at this point. The diverticulitis grading scale was um, that the, the validation of that has been um, published this year as well, also by Shafi. And we are currently collecting data from a multicentered centered Clinical observational trial looking to validate the necrotizing soft tissue infection, and that one we're actually doing a weighted sampling. So we're weighting the higher grades because one of the challenges with the diverticulitis is that, thank goodness, hardly anybody died. But it's hard to do a mortality prediction model if hardly anybody dies. So we are we are weighting the sample for the necrotizing soft tissue infection. And a, at AAST this year, um, another group. Had, had validated our appendicitis grading scale and found it to be very useful and helpful in predicting not mortality, because again, happily very few people die of appendicitis, but length of stay and complications and wound infections and so forth. So those there those were the ways that we've done it. And usually we use it in a multiple, a multiple regression model in terms of predictive capacity. And anatomic grading does help, but of course things like age and physiology also contribute.
2: I should say there's another uh, group that worked on the small bowel obstruction. Uh, oh, that's right. Yes. And, and validation that was actually of that published one. this I think, year. Mm-hmm. I think that was
0: Marty Zelensky if I'm not mistaken. That's
3: right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And so, it's been really uh,
3: gratifying, interest and validation.
0: Absolutely. And and so my I guess my other question is, um, you know, if this turns out to not be a, a predictive tool or, or or whatever, does that really matter? I mean, it's still – It still anatomically makes sense, and for all the other reasons that you elucidated, it still seems like it would be a useful, at least, nomenclature, even if it's not a predictive scaling. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's still good to go? Um,
3: Yes, I think it does make intuitive sense that you would classify things anatomically. I would be surprised if there weren't some predictive capacity, although I think certainly in some disease processes it would be better than others. for like, I, I have a feeling this necrotizing soft tissue infection is going to be very predictive. Um, but, but again, it's it's hard to know. I think in more acute illnesses, it may be more predictive. Um, but, but I, but I do think there is utility in having a common way of describing anatomic severity of illness, even if it is not, if it doesn't add too much to the ability to predict mortality.
2: I wonder if there's also a, a utility as not only an, an outcomes uh, prediction, but a management prediction. I mean, can you imagine that we would get to the point very much like we have for, uh, for trauma, even though we're going away from it now, um, or perhaps like we have for some of the other uh, individual disease scales. Can you imagine that we get to the point that uh, there are uh, you know, sort of pseudo rules to remember, like, oh, you, you really have to operate anytime you have a grade three perforated ulcer.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I can imagine that. I think we're, I, I can absolutely imagine that, and I, I think that is one of the things that we've discussed. Obviously, we're pretty far away from that now, sure. but it's even happening to some degree with appendicitis, with all the discussion about non-operative management of appendicitis, right. and what are the parameters of that. So I think that I think that you're probably right. I think that's a that's a good call. We are moving in that general direction.
0: Or even antibiotic duration or other, mm-hmm. you know, clinically important uh, decisions that, that may be based on this. So okay. Well, so now I have a this is this is me admitting my own ignorance, but I'm one who kind of one of the factors in choosing trauma and acute care surgery as a career was because I could never remember the TNM staging for cancer, <laughs> for any disease. Um Is is there, and maybe, Christian, this is a good question for you, Um, are you designing an app to help me remember this and to help me to be able to calculate these for my patients? That would be great. So I'd love to, and and
2: now that you've mentioned it, I think it's a great idea. (laughs) But I will entirely admit that I'm exactly the same as you in uh, you know, in studying for boards, the, the hardest thing for me was remembering the different stagings uh, and so forth. But realistically, that's the other thing that I loved so much about this framework: is that it really is designed to, you know, be the same thing. Um, so, you know, nodal disease in cancers may change stages on you and and uh, and, and be difficult to remember outside of that T N M. Um, but again, here it's within each anatomic disease. There's, you know, anatomy uh, an inflammation that's confined to the affected organ. There's direct spread beyond that. There's, you know, spread outside of the local region. Again, it, it, it sounds very similar to cancer staging in some ways, but at the same time, it's standardized so that the same amount of uh, spread or the same distance of spread, if you will, um, ends up being the same score. So don't get me wrong I'll I'll get an app out and you know a website and tweet about it uh if for pure self promotion uh but at the same time I'm not really sure that it's necessary.
1: So so Dave you you didn't like remembering the TNM system so you went into trauma where every single organ has a five
0: <laughs> exactly
1: multi subcategory scoring system
0: well the key point is there are registrars to help with that kind of stuff. <laughs> Well, actually, now that you mentioned the
2: the trauma scoring again, I did want to ask one thing of Marie. I'm curious, Um, one of the ways that trauma was so interesting to those of us who who saw it um, after the advent of the scoring systems is that, again, those, those scoring systems, we're starting to go by the wayside in terms of those rules that I mentioned earlier. Oh, maybe I don't always have to operate for a grade four spleen, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I I wonder, again, on those outcomes, though, if there is some utility to the more advanced uh, scores having worse outcomes. So the the big thing that I'm noticing, or that I notice is the difference in your system versus the the AAST trauma injury uh, scoring system. Is the absence of a, of a level six, the absence of the quote unquote unsurvivable injury, um, you know, is again that outcomes uh, sort of thing something that you really see happening? Um, and would you consider modifying the anatomic basis of the scores if, for instance, uh, the outcomes from a level one and a level two appendicitis ended up being exactly the same?
3: I think that's interesting. Um, probably not, because I would imagine that the outcomes for level one and level two appendicitis are not going to. Unless you look at a million appendicitis cases, you're probably not going to see all that much difference, frankly. But the anatomic difference is probably still important because it's the pathophysiology of disease that is useful and instructional. And I think that's probably similar for, let's say, you know, a basal cell carcinoma, like, or you know, a, a very indolent thyroid cancer the different yeah there is a difference between 95% survival and 96% survival but not so much you know and that may be the case but it's still useful to to think in that way Um, but that being said I don't I don't mean to say that it wouldn't be modifiable particularly if we begin to understand more about a disease process Um, I think it I think these I certainly would not want to think of these as written in stone and on, and immutable, because this this should be this is and should be organic.
1: And that was going to be my question, Marie. So, is there a process in place where you guys are going to, you know, look at these at any intervals and and modify them based yeah, on our, the exactly. the out- data? Yeah, our
3: plan was to revisit these about every five years at first and and see if there's anything that you know has really come up in that interval that that Excuse me. seems to be an obvious misstep or if people have written to us or now that they're posted on the double website you know people are are have our contact information and are absolutely welcome to give feedback and say I think this would be better if and I and, and, and that was we were planning we were planning to revisit them every five years anyway but in that interim if we saw that a certain issue kept coming up, I think that it would make all the sense in the world to revisit it sooner.
0: So my question is uh, implementation. Do I just start using it and uh, if eventually people will catch up to me? Or, I, you know, how how do we go about starting to use this clinically or, or using it uh, in documentation? Yes, is it is it at the right. point where we can start doing it?
3: I uh these are not proprietary and you are welcome to use them anytime. They're publicly available on the the AAST website and you can begin using them now if you'd like use them for research, use them for documentation. However, however you'd like
2: I I take that even a step step further. I'm wondering, you know, I think it's a great idea. I've obviously raved about it um both in the literature review and and here, but I I want other people to use it, and is that really just a matter of starting to use it myself and hoping that I'm some sort of trendsetter or uh, referring people to it? I guess the question is, you know, how do you build this? How do you uh, uh, advertise it as something that's available and and something that, you know, maybe should be used?
3: That's a very interesting question. I cannot say we went so far as to talk about that, and that may just be due to – mine and Shafi's nature if that makes sense neither yeah, of us of course. were about advertising it or advertising them to be used but when you say that it certainly <laughs> makes sense so we will <laughs> welcome any uh any any sort of any sort of promotional activities i, I can't say that we've come up with we had even discussed uh, a mechanism of advertising or promoting the use of this
2: or, or I guess in a in a more general sense, you know, how do you, maybe you shouldn't I don't know uh, how do you get sort of buy-in? Um, again, it's it's a wonderful wonderful uh, list of definitions, and it's easy to understand. And in and of itself, maybe that's all you need to do is is the wonderful creation that you've all worked on. Um, but is there a place? And I don't know, Dave or Matt, maybe you have ideas. Is there a place for? Trying to get some buy in to this as a scale that more people should be using,
0: well, I wonder if you could get special special preference or consideration for your abstracts if you use the nomenclature. That's my suggestion. If you use the double severity scoring you'll get you'll get you know front of the line or something like that. I don't know I don't know that any of us have the power to make that happen, but something along those lines to motivate people to adopt it, I think would be helpful,
3: interesting, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think, uh, I, I mean, it, it, you know, if you want something to start being used, target the young people coming out of fellowship who are going to be, you know, driving the next generation. So so integrating this into, you know, everyone, everyone who's doing an acute care surgery fellowship, you know, they're familiarized with the organ injury scales, and they should probably be familiarized with this scoring system now.
3: Yeah, that's a good point, and that that is something that we have done in terms of reaching out to the um, the acute care surgery fellowship committee of AAST. Uh, it hasn't been formalized yet, but we do have that relationship.
1: And and when we finally make our certifying exam, there's questions on the exam, so you, you know they're going to know it.
3: <laughs> that's right. Yeah, I may not know it but <laughs> if it if they're requiring us to relearn some scoring systems. But uh, – because cause honestly, if this turns up on a research exam, please feel free to kill me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, maybe we can use Christian's app. Yeah,
2: if this, uh, if this ends up being on a research exam, I'm downright thrilled because I'm actually doing well on the research exam for a change. So, <laughs>
1: hey, so Marie, so you mentioned uh, risk stratification and, and you know, we don't really have much now. I'm going to take the part of the offended NISQIP administrator who says, well, what do you mean? We, we have a NISQIP emergency general surgery risk calculator, and, and that's all you need. That gives you your risk prediction.
3: I think that would be nice in theory, but in practice, I think all of us who do acute care surgery realize that the risk calculator severely underestimates the the risk of our emergency general surgery patients. Um, most of us feel like that, that – uh, Provider discretion bar would be moved all the way over to 100% on mortality on a lot of these folks that we're seeing. I I just think it. I think because of the the nature of emergency general surgery and the physiology, sometimes you don't have all of the you don't have all of the variables that go into the model when you first operate on someone, or someone gets very sick very quickly, and you know they're getting sick very quickly, and their creatinine's going to triple in six hours, but their initial creatinine is okay. So depending on where – and by then, you know, you've already taken them to the operating room and you're not really talking about the risk calculator. So I, I feel like – and I feel like in speaking with other colleagues um, using the, the risk calculator, it, it underperforms with emergency general surgery patients. And, that you know, NISQIP is not – is certainly doesn't take care of trauma patients. and I feel like our really sick emergency general surgery patients are a lot more like trauma patients with a lot more rapidly changing physiology and organ system failure than than just general surgery patients, so that's that's why I think it underperforms. And I think it, as we get as we use this model and maybe incorporating good or better physiology markers for our EGS patients, that we will um, we'll see that there are better ways to to predict and risk stratify our EGS patients.
1: So. Uh, Marie, you know, obviously you were intimately involved with creating these. What were what were the one or two pathologies that, that were the, what you think were the hardest to really come up with a good grading scale for?
3: The hardest by far were the bleeding diseases. Because it didn't really fit into the model of something that's kind of prodromal and then through a pathway of inflammation ultimately to perforation necrosis, widespread multisystem organ disease, you know, or, or multi-like uh, <clears throat> disseminated disease like the inflammatory model did. Instead, we talked a lot about do we need a score for bleeding diseases at all, or should we simply rely on physiology? because maybe somebody can bleed a liter from a ruptured aortic aneurysm, but if they're hemodynamically stable, then the real push to do something about it or, you know, get in you know, EVAR or TVAR or something is the physiology, but we ultimately decided that there were a few diseases that did seem to have some anatomic prediction, like whether or not there was a, a visible vessel those those kinds of things so we we did tackle that and that is something that's going to come out as a that's something that's going to come out as a um <clears throat> as a um as a presentation at ASC and then ultimately a paper for probably journal surgical research so you will see hot off the presses how much fun we had for years <laughs> trying to tackle this. And there were It, it actually got uh, a bit tense at times.
2: Well, I wonder if that might also bring us back full circle into the the way that this framework got started in the first case. You know, when you decided to do an anatomic rating scale as opposed to incorporating physiology and, and those other things, um, I mean, was that in and of itself in question, my my big reason for asking is because when I first started learning about this, I thought, oh, okay, so we're looking at you know systemic effects and systemic spread for those grade fours and fives. Uh, uh, you know, it must be that if somebody has acute appendicitis and a sepsis, that makes them a grade five. And of course, that's not at all uh, what's intended or or laid out in this document. It's generalized peritonitis and, and other inflammatory changes. Um, So I wonder if if those physiologic questions that arise, those things that we see on a clinical basis, were initially thought of as contributing to the score, um, or if it it really was going to be anatomic all along.
3: Yeah, that's an excellent question. And we we did spend a lot of time discussing exactly that point, because we all agreed that physiology does impact outcomes, needless to say. So the question was, how do we find a uniform grading scale, and we decided to first focus on the anatomy because it seemed simpler and it seemed intuitive that it would be easier to create a framework with that. And there are also 5 million different physiology scores, right? There's the Apache score, the SOFA score, the fill-in-the-blank score, and, and really none of them had been tested with respect to which is the best to predict <clears throat> outcomes for emergency general surgery patients. So, so we decided to limit it to anatomy first, and I will tell you that right now our group is is doing a systematic review of the physiology scores as they relate to acute care surgery. So, I, I, we don't we haven't finished that yet, but I think that that will potentially add to our ability to at least say, well, maybe this is what we should use for EDS patients, or maybe we don't know. Um, but, but we did consciously make the decision to not include physiology at first with the understanding that it is a big it is it is a big contributor to mortality for EGS patients and that it is not to be ignored.
0: Well, I think that's uh great. I think uh you've both offered great comments and uh hopefully stimulated a lot of thought in our listeners and uh I would imagine a bunch of future research projects and other interesting ideas. So, uh maybe we'll look back on this podcast, is we can say, oh, I was there when we saw it first uh, take off. So inc- congratulations, Marie, to you and your group. Uh, this is really phenomenal work and uh, very exciting. Well, thank you so much for your interest, surgeon. and
3: what great questions. Thank you.
0: Yep,
1: and thanks uh, for a great uh, lit review, Christian. Oh, believe me, it yes, was my pleasure.
2: So thank you for giving me some great stuff to read, Marie.
3: Uh, well, no, seriously, it's it's the interest like this that hopefully will keep snowballing and really help us with respect to no risk stratification and all of those questions about billing and quality in emergency general surgery.
0: Well, thank you both. Appreciate it. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.